1: What could go right? I'm speaking today with Dr. Kai-Fu Lee, who has had an extraordinary career spanning academia, business, and investing. He spent years as a speech recognition scientist at Carnegie Mellon, got his PhD, born in China, moved to the United States, then went to work first for Apple, then eventually for Microsoft, then Google. So he's been at the center of the rise of Silicon Valley in the 1990s, into the aughts, and into recently he is one of the primary drivers of artificial intelligence research, and hence has written a new book about AI superpowers, looking at the ways in which China and the United States are both in separate but in many ways equal ways innovating and, and developing artificial intelligence technologies. He is also an unbelievably thoughtful soul who has reflected most recently in a widely listened to and watched TED Talk in April of 2018 about his own relationship to work and life and a work like Life Balance. And it gives him a unique perspective on technology and its effects on humanity in a way that is profoundly non-alarmist. We live in a climate where so many people are either promising the utopian transformation brought about by technological innovation or the dystopian destruction of how technology will not only eradicate jobs, but undermine and unravel the threads that bind us together. And Kai-Fu Lee has a different sensibility, having been someone who has been at the belly of the beast, in many ways has created the belly of the beast, and sees a more constructive path of the synchronicity between human needs and desires on the one hand, and the technologies we create on the other. And that it need not be a zero-sum. In fact, it can be building upon both strands in a way that can enliven and enrich our worlds. So he is a fascinating individual. Our conversation in no way will be able to do justice to the depth of his thought or the profundity of his experience. But it is a start, and I'm really looking forward to it. So Kai-Fu Lee, you're out with a new book, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. But for you, at least, this is a chapter in a life that has had multiple chapters, from being in academia, to being at Microsoft, to Google, to now your current independent ventures in investing. And curious as to what the genesis was for writing the book, because not everyone writes a book, there's often a reason, or at least we hope there's often a reason, so why a book and why now and why on this?
2: Uh, sure, thanks. It's great to be on your show. Uh, there are really uh, three reasons. Uh, first, I've been working on AI for the last 30 plus years as a researcher, uh, product executive, and then an investor. So I feel like I have a unique outlook on artificial intelligence that I feel other books do not quite deliver. Second, because in our investments we are seeing uh, a significant percentage of the companies that we invest in uh, are building great products that would when they launch and are successful displace jobs and that makes me concerned and feel like that's a message that should get out and then lastly i've been working in us and china but the china portion in the last uh, 4 years has been really, really unusual as I experienced China develop a new style of entrepreneurism as well as very successful execution in AI. I think that's a very interesting little short piece of history to chronicle and maybe some useful lessons for entrepreneurs throughout the world.
1: So here's an interesting thought. You w- were doing research on speech recognition, right, as a graduate 30 years ago, 35 years ago. That's right. and Clearly, you had some thoughts about what the future would hold. If I were having a conversation or you were having a conversation with you in the 1980s about where all this would lead now-ish, what would you have thought then versus what you're seeing now?
2: Uh, I would have been uh, totally wrong. I would have (laughs) guessed probably uh, speech recognition would be pervasive in the 20-year time frame, maybe 15-year time frame back then. So I was way too optimistic in that front. And then I was really, I think, lacking in imagination and business thinking that I would have predicted speech would have been the way you talk to your PC and the VCR. (laughs) Those were some of the appliances. Programming a VCR was hard and the PC was the device that I used all the time. So I just imagined talking to them, but um, little did I imagine that it would be primarily the speakers and the smart appliances, and then secondly, the, the mobile phones that we are using speech
1: on. So you would have thought you'd have more of an interactive speech relationship with your computer, whatever, that, whatever we call that, versus your washing machine. No one would have necessarily thought of an Alexa or a Siri or a you know, Google Home kind of device.
2: That's right. And I think the big mistake was that PC already had a keyboard and mouse-driven interface. It, speech would have been a fifth wheel. In fact, on the mobile phone, it's largely a touchscreen interface, so speech is a little bit of a fifth wheel. And that's why Alexa, that's designed to be a speech-only interface. That's why that became the smashing success, because speech finally became good enough, and it had to be primary before it could be good. Otherwise, apps would just primarily be driven by other modalities um, with speech as an added-on afterthought.
1: So in this kind of rise of the world that you've witnessed, and you have an unusual career, right? There's not a lot of people who've gone from Apple to Microsoft to Google and also had the good fortune to be sued along the way for jumping ship. Was the way we are now, right, the current world of artificial intelligence and speech, and I'm not saying those are the same thing, it's just we're, we're talking about it now. What were the choices made That you witnessed to invest in X rather than Y? Meaning, it's always interesting to think about we live in the world that we currently live in, but presumably we could have lived in eight different worlds. What were the choices that led to the set of devices that we currently have and then also AI as it's currently understood?
2: So maybe I'll give uh, two answers one to devices and one to AI. I think devices, it was uh, Steve Jobs' genius. Had he not done uh, what he had done with the iPhone, Android was going in the different direction, and people were thinking Nokia, Blackberry, and those directions probably would not have led to the degree of um, ease of use and proliferation of mobile phones. Therefore, a lot of the conveniences that we enjoy today, whether it's social network, e-commerce, or uh, ordering food, or things like that, uh, would have been at least slowed by a decade, if not longer. I think that was a very important seminal moment. And then with AI, I think it was uh, Jeff Hinton's insistence to continue to work on neural networks, despite not getting a lot of acceptance in the 90s. Uh, He moved to Toronto. He was the inventor of uh, a lot of artificial neural network technologies. Uh, When I was at Carnegie Mellon, he was there. And uh, his work was considered the best in that field, but that field wasn't taking off. And it wasn't taking off because... Artificial neural networks didn't become very powerful unless they could have deep learning and have have a lot of data And it really took Three decades before there was enough data to power the deep neural networks to really do the amazing things they did so his patience to stick with it and to you know tolerate getting a lot less funding and uh, not uh, as much recognition as the people who worked on speech and computer vision, who use more shortcut approaches, uh, such as myself and many others, um, that his patience and determination to stick with artificial neural networks and finally see the light of day—I think that was an incredibly important in the history
1: too. So you know, if most Americans, when they think about AI and artificial intelligence, until recently, if they thought about it at all, were aware of IBM and Deep Blue, and whether or not you could create a computer that could either beat a chess champion or a computer that could beat a Jeopardy champion. But in your book, you talk about a completely different set of, set of programs based on AlphaGo and a program that could beat a Go champion, which is, of course, an ancient Chinese game and maybe why Americans didn't pay as much attention. Talk about the difference between whatever Deep Blue was trying to do right, in beating a chess champion versus the much more complicated, sophisticated. And I guess in your reading transformative in terms of AI and algorithms, AlphaGo and like what that, what the genesis of that was?
2: You know, computer chess was an interesting problem when I went to grad school in the 80s. And the primary um, developer of Deep Blue, Feng Sheng Shu, was my colleague. He was, um, we graduated at the same time. And I knew his work very well. He was a brilliant researcher but more of a hardware expert. He basically built a faster-searching hardware that brute-force searched the ways through computer chess, and then it was good enough to be the world champion. That was in the 90s. Uh, but at the time, we compared, because we're in deep in AI research, and we compared chess and Go, and if you think about chess, at any given time, each side uh, had to available maybe on the order of 30 moves. And then when you search its chess tree, it's an exponential. So it's, let's say you search uh, 20 levels, so you're looking at a space of 30 to the 20th. But when you play Go, there are on the order of 300 places you could place your pieces. And you have to go a lot deeper to see a variation on the board. So you're talking about something more like
0: 300
2: to the 100th power. So the numbers are astronomically different. What it took to be the computer chess champion would not be even do the beginnings of beating an amateur local club player in Go. So at the time, we saw the astronomical difference and we thought while AI was stuck, um, this approach we took just wouldn't get there and Go would be the grand challenge. And many of us in AI predicted that Go would take a long time to accomplish and beat. But uh, AlphaGo did that in a very short amount of time, and it achieved such greatness that I think uh, Deep Blue kind of barely beat uh, Kasparov, but uh, AlphaGo resoundingly defeated world champion and then actually almost rewrote the way one should study the game even as humans. So that was a huge, huge deal. Um, The Jeopardy Watson was interesting, but it was a one-off experiment using kind of old technologies. It was more akin to knowledge representation and combination of that and um, the search engine. So because, you know, we worked at Google, we saw we could rethink how it would be done. And when it was done, then we thought that was very nice, but we could do it ourselves. And similarly with Deep Blue, we thought, wow, that was great, but that's hardware. We could do it ourselves. In both cases, we, we thought we could do it. The AlphaGo was really a, a breakthrough.
1: So in some sense, for a kind of a layman's term, the earlier versions, the, the Watson and the Deep Blue, were a hardware, throw a lot of computing power with, with data and the ability of fast machines to outpace fast minds versus a multidimensional software approach. I mean, eventually, right, computer power would have gotten great enough that the Deep Blue approach could have worked for Go, right? just with enough processors and enough...
2: I don't think so. I think today if we took Deep Blue algorithm and not add any of the known new stuff and just ran it on the fastest hardware plus software and then just completely transferred it to Go, I don't think it would be anywhere close to AlphaGo's level. So I think what was critical was really the invention of deep learning and correspondingly the huge amount of data it took to train uh, deep learning. These two things, uh, I think, went hand in hand.
1: So the part of your book and the talks you've given that's counterintuitive to what a lot of people perceive is that you argue that the algorithm or the, the basics behind deep learning are the key invention for current artificial intelligence everywhere. And I think you use the analogy of it's much like the modern discovery of electricity generation that Thomas Edison did, then it took decades and decades to find multiple, multiple applications for how to generate electricity. But that basic unlocking was the key ingredient that there isn't now necessarily AI breakthroughs other than deep learning. There's just massive figuring out how to apply, tweak, refine. Is that a, a correct definition of how you see the current AI landscape?
2: Uh, Yes, it is. I mean, I provide for the possibility of another breakthrough. There's always new breakthroughs possible. Um, I think the main point I was making is when you look at the last 62 years of development of AI, the one single huge breakthrough was deep learning. That was 10 years ago. And since then, there hasn't been another breakthrough anywhere close to its magnitude. So for us to say, oh, there will be A lot more breakthroughs that AI will jump to a new level or even match human intelligence. I think that's just pure imagination that I I don't rule out the possibility, but it doesn't seem likely based on the history of 62 years.
1: So all these people who are writing, I mean, there's a, a whole set of people now who are forecasting sentient machines and when we're going to be in a period where there's self-sustaining intelligence that approximates consciousness on the part of machines. You think that that's still really in the realm of dreams and fantasy. It doesn't mean it won't come true at some point. You just think it's way beyond the current horizon.
2: Yeah, and that's partly... That was the first reason I mentioned that I wrote the book, that these imaginative people are generally physicists, philosophers, um, historians, or uh, economists, or politicians, or storytellers, or science fiction readers, or writers, none of them AI researchers, very few AI researchers truly believe this. And I talked to many of them, and they're kind of frustrated that there is this fantasy going on, but they just shake their head and go back to work. And most of them are quite pleased that someone stood up and spoke what's in their mind, which is deep learning is an amazing innovation. It will be electricity-like in creating these single-domain problem solvers. But these problem solvers, while they create a lot of value and displace some jobs, are nothing like the sentient human beings. And to get there, we'll probably need 20 more breakthroughs, which uh, requires God knows how many more years or decades or centuries, or maybe never.
1: So in this emerging and yet still somewhat constrained landscape, you talk about how China has an equivalent power to the United States in terms of resources being utilized to build out various aspects of AI. Why do you think China has particular advantages, and the United States clearly also has particular advantages in terms of capital and and innovation culture, but Talk about the difference between the two, which is, of course, ever more salient at a time when, at the political realm, there seems to be an increasing degree of cooling of relations between China and the U.S. or ratcheting up of actual tensions, which makes this whole conversation of who has the AI edge somewhat more weighted than it would have been you know, even five or ten years ago.
2: That's right. China and U.S. are both very strong in AI for very different reasons, almost opposite reasons. I think uh, U.S. is stronger in very strong um, depth in the the researchers. So probably 60, 70% of the world's best AI researchers are living in America, driving the field forward. China has perhaps one-tenth of that size. U.S. has the best universities, research lab. If there were another breakthrough, Uh, it would likely come from America. And U.S. has uh, the world's most powerful, successful AI company, Google. It is by far better than any other company, uh, Chinese or American, in AI technologies. And U.S. has a very strong, innovative approach driven by Silicon Valley. China's strength is, actually, there's more capital in China. Last year, more money was invested in AI than U.S., although that's not the main reason. But there's a lot of capital Precisely because there's a lot of very hardworking and opportunity-seeking, fearless, high-ambition entrepreneurs, even more so than Silicon Valley. Maybe less innovative, um, but more tenacious in picking a problem and not afraid to very uh, extreme, drastic things, hiring a lot of people, taking on challenges and solving it. I think that's a different entrepreneurial culture but probably more suited to applying ai to a business problem less suited to inventing a new ai approach that's china so entrepreneurial culture in china i think is favorable but the biggest advantage in china is data because deep learning requires a large amount of data and it works better in any domain uh, when you have more data china has more users and each user uses mobile or whatever application many more times than, uh, say, in the US. So ch- China has a huge amount of data that becomes rocket fuel uh, for AI. And then lastly, China has a lot of uh, strong government level support, which uh, includes building infrastructure, like new cities, new highways for autonomous vehicles, as well as a very technically friendly policy that's trying to push technology forward and regulates it only when problems come up, as opposed to regulates it from the beginning. And also, China has less of the complexity of, uh, you know, liability, insurance, lawsuit, consumer advocacy, and labor unions uh, and uh, lobbyists, all of whom play a role in potentially slowing down the adoption of technology. So that's the China advantage. So roughly 50-50 with things going for each country.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
1: in China versus the United States. And look, like anything else, there are 1.3 or 4 billion people in China. There are 320, 30, 40 million people in the United States. For every generalization, there's going to be a lot of people who don't fit that generalization. Nonetheless, you've talked about differing attitudes toward data sharing at a consumer and an individual level in, in China versus the United States. It, it struck me years ago. I was, I ran an investment fund that invested in Chinese and US companies for a period of years and, and wrote about that a bit that things like the bots that would in China five ten years ago scan the data permission scanning all of the data on a iPhone or any smartphone as a way of establishing a credit trail so that you could get approved for a small consumer loan in five minutes or as long as it took but that required, permissioning access to all the data on your on your personal device in a way that, you know, until recently most Americans, let alone most Europeans, wouldn't have been comfortable with. But you say it's not that in China people are unconcerned about privacy. It's just they have a more, I guess, utilitarian approach to it. Talk about that a bit.
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I think the data advantage primarily comes from the population size and the usage frequency, but uh, I would also acknowledge that privacy is held at a much higher level in the U.S. and Europe than in China. Uh, I okay. think there are a couple of reasons behind it. One is actually newness, right? I think more, more naivete, less consumer advocacy causes people to push that OK button more often. That is changing because more and more people are reading about you know, the Cambridge Analytica stories and things like that and are becoming more concerned. But on the average, yes, still uh, more more willingness. And I think secondly, it's, as you said, a utilitarian view. No one wants to give up privacy of, from any country, but privacy is always traded off against things like convenience or public good, such as, you know, contributing to a health database for cancer or security, such as cameras in uh, airport that makes your flight safer, but you're being watched. So when those trade-offs are presented, I do think on the average, the Chinese users, even when fully disclosed, would be a little more open to um, having the data taken if there's something utilitarian positive in exchange for it.
1: It's funny. I mean, you you remember, of course, the famous line that Scott McNeely, who was then CEO son in the late 90s said, you have no privacy, get over it. And everybody was, at least in the Western world, was shocked by this comment, right? What are you talking about? That's ridiculous. And in a weird way, right, that's a, become an extremely prescient remark. I've often asked people, particularly in the US, right, why there has been such comfort with almost zero privacy if it's transactional with Amazon or with Google or I guess with Microsoft but a high level of concern about privacy when it comes to government access to data. Now, at least in Europe, right, recently with the passage of the the data protection, the European Union has been extremely concerned with the sort of free, promiscuous use of data by large companies and has been much more aggressive about that than Americans. Some people have responded, well, Amazon or Microsoft isn't going to break down your door and and haul you away and arrest you for whatever data that they find, whereas governments can, so that's the concern about it. You've had experiences in all these cultures and all these attitudes. Do you find the lines make sense, or are they just culturally arbitrary?
2: I think they're culturally different. A lot of these expectations and entitlement come from the heritage of, of each country, so that's certainly one aspect. I think another dimension is just from... Uh, experience and and naivete I think Chinese users are relatively newer to internet so I think more maybe more exploratory and some of it come from utilitarian culture versus uh, individual liberty culture Uh, I don't think it's right or wrong and I I don't think there is I don't think there can be a single universal standards there might be some lowest common denominators world can agree upon, but I'm, I'm certain the standards will be different. The European approach, I think, is an interesting experiment, but I, I think it's probably going to be a failure because it's uh, government putting at the individual person's hand uh, very fine level control over privacy, and that's not the right knob. I don't know what the right knob is, but giving me control over you know Google, Gmail, YouTube, Facebook, which wants to give this access or that, uh, I don't think I, as a consumer, can make an intelligent choice, informed choice, I should say. So I I think it's good that Europe is doing an experiment, and I think once it fails, people will hopefully come up with a better way, and it'll be a kind of a crowdsourcing to all the governments to figure out more reasonable ways to give users a little more control over privacy, which I think is a good thing. But the way it's being done in Europe, is just not very
1: smart. And you're not necessarily a fan, therefore, of the more utopian or maybe dystopian, depending on your perspective, view that all these companies, Microsoft and Google, I mean, Google more than Microsoft, to be fair, and, and Amazon and you name it, have made huge amounts of money essentially getting our data for free. And there's a movement toward maybe there should be a way, blockchain, some way of having your own personal data key that you then license to whomever it is that wants to use it to develop new AI tools or commercial products?
2: I'm absolutely sympathetic to the thinking. I think the thinking behind it is right. These companies are using our data to make a ton of money. But sometimes one can't reverse history. I don't see any practical ways of... uh, taking it out of them without creating something that's unfair to them, and, and also consistent with all the laws and regulations of all the countries. And Once you talk about giving the right back to the user, I think then you're talking about a different European view from an American view from a Chinese view. Um, I just think it's a very messy problem. I think if people want to start new businesses that way, that might be better the legacy ones are going to be really hairy to tackle. I'm very sympathetic to the thinking. In an idealistic world if we could start over again, that might be better. But sometimes you just can't, you know, roll back time and start things over.
1: So in our time left, let's talk a little bit about the future and then I actually want to talk a little bit about your TED talk and, and about you and how you kind of see your own future. So on the future question, you talk a lot about, as have many people, about the challenges ahead For multiple jobs that have been traditional, McKinsey Global Institute has probably been the most aggressive in talking about just how large a percentage of current jobs are under challenge from robotics and AI over the next couple of decades. I mean, their their numbers are astronomical thirty plus percent. And you talk about that as well that there's many tasks that human beings have done that we call jobs that artificial intelligence and the kind of the growth of deep learning will if not make completely irrelevant, will make largely irrelevant. How quickly is this going to happen? How severe do you think it will be? And what do you think we should do?
2: Well, I think technically and economically AI will the current just the current technologies plus natural extensions will be able to do probably half of what we do in the fifteen to twenty year time frame the actual unemployment is hard to estimate because then you've got policy, regulation, employer decision and uh, human decision and things like that. So it might actually be another decade or even longer. But it is a very large number. I don't think the human race has, has experienced such a large number. Maybe the largest has been agriculture to manufacturing. It's at least that level of, of, of magnitude because as deep learning is a great technology, but, and it's not anything like human intelligence, but it's great at doing routine jobs that can be quantified into uh, objective decisions. And if you look at most jobs uh, in the world today, they are like that. It's not gonna take away the jobs of scientists or CEOs or M&A experts or or your, your job or my job, but it will really challenge the white collar and the blue collar routine jobs. And that's a substantial number and we need to be cognizant of that. I, as an investor, see companies. I actually went through all of our companies and counted seven in big job categories that are being challenged just in investments that we've made, just in China. And you multiply that by many other VCs, and then these are just startups. And also look at all the large AI companies. I think the numbers uh, will be very large.
1: And then, what do we do about that?
2: I think in the long term, you know, if you look. 50 or to 100 years, we could actually, there are a lot of solutions. We could work less, uh, we could work four days a week. Some people may not have to work, and also in the longer term, AI will probably create more jobs, jobs that we have no idea what they are. Just like you know, electricity and um, uh, industrial revolution, in the long term, they created jobs more than they replaced jobs. Jobs are supposed to rotate uh, over a you know, period of a century anyway. The problem is in the short term is that the AI displacement will happen very fast. Unlike uh, electricity, which required an electrical grid to be built and new appliances to be invented, AI could, uh, will happen in the next 15 to 25 years. And if we're looking at 40, 50 percent of the jobs, that's a very large percentage. And it's unlikely AI will create that many opportunities. So I think we need to look at what job categories are growing And that can be trained in a modest amount of time and that people who move off routine jobs can be retrained to move into these jobs. We don't have to worry as much about the money issue because AI will save and make so much money, there's going to be some way to deal with it redistribution if needed. But it's more of the next 20, 30 years, people in the routine jobs, if they're displaced, just giving a social welfare isn't enough. People want the meaning attached to the jobs they have. So the retraining and then moving on to a new job that's hopefully more satisfying is
1: quite important. So is this more relevant though for the United States than for China, which has a totally different trajectory of there's still 500 million people that are non-urbanized and there, there's a long-range plan from the Chinese government to to move everyone into a more urban middle-class life that at one point was factory-driven and factory-employment-driven. Like what happens in China with this versus a more, I don't know, cushioned transition. Let's say in the United States and a completely cushioned one in Europe.
2: I'm not sure it's easier for anybody because if we're looking at white-collar jobs being displaced first, actually all countries are about equal. And the white-collar, routine white-collar jobs is somewhat of a backbone of a lot of societies. We're talking about uh, customer service reps, telemarketing, customer support, basic engineering jobs, basic accounting jobs, basic reporters, and so on and so forth. So I think all countries will be significantly affected. Uh, China is probably not much better or worse off than the U.S. in in that respect.
1: So you don't see this as a threat to the China growth trajectory writ large?
2: Well, China growth is slowing down anyway. Even with China growth slowing down, it's still going to be the world's largest uh, economic entity those things aren't going to be affected by that. There are a lot of arguments either way about why it might hurt China more or less. And I think those are not the, the main issues because when we look at the job categories, whether it's McKinsey or uh, Oxford or uh, OEDC studies or our own studies or our own investments, they hit jobs that are in the mainstream in the tens of millions in Europe, US and China.
1: So. On this, given that you now are, you split your time between Beijing and Silicon Valley, do you feel a change in the climate, in the economic, in the business climate, in the research climate based on a somewhat changed relationship politically between China and the United States? Or for the time being, are these still existing in in sort of separate realms?
2: It depends on which realm you're looking at. In the research realm, there's been absolutely no change researchers uh, continue to work together. They've always worked together pretty well across U.S., China, and other countries. And I think the AI researchers' willingness to share has been a major reason for the uh, continued progress. In the business world, I think a lot of people are affected and watching because there are a lot of dependencies between the two countries. And anywhere from CFIUS to um, export control, to tariffs affect I think a lot of industries on the other hand when it comes to AI and mobile technologies which is primarily what we invest in in China uh, actually China and US are in two parallel universes Chinese VCs funding Chinese companies building products for the Chinese people so their gain or loss would not be at all related to the American companies gain or loss so it's almost two parallel universes moving forward and not affected by the trade dispute. So it, it really depends on uh, case by case.
1: So I want to end with a totally different question, uh, and this has been fascinating. I feel like we could go on for hours, and people would probably listen to minutes of it, which is you gave a TED Talk in Vancouver in April, and you talked about your own challenge to, to find a good work-life balance, right, over a long career where you worked unbelievably and unbelievably intensively, and you know, you spoke about how you found that there was a big imbalance between your personal life, your family life, your relationships, and your work. And clearly, you're still doing fascinating things. You're investing. You are, by all definitions, a person of the world. But do you feel that you've actually come to a place where you have found that perfect, noble, eightfold path balance of work, life, ambition, all of it?
2: Oh, I'm I'm sure it's not perfect, but it's uh, significantly improved. <laughs> yeah, as I mentioned in the TED Talk, it was through discovering that I had fourth stage lymphoma that I realized the most important thing is, is not work itself, but the the people you love and the people around you. and And that actually comes back to AI in thinking that if those are the things that matter, then can those things be done by AI? And the answer is no. Therein lies the answer to the question we brought up earlier about all the job displacements, that if there are enough uh, service jobs that have an empathetic love or compassion or trust component, those are the jobs that we could uh, retrain people to do. So that's how I reconnected the dots and my own workaholism, my own illness, my own epiphany, and the importance of compassion and empathy and how AI can't do that comes back to close the book by saying that uh, we actually can uh, retrain and create and have highly satisfying jobs that are service jobs, but they're service jobs that have a high human touch and compassion and empathy that goes from uh, nannies, nurses, doctors, teachers, social workers, and so on, and that many of these jobs are are trainable, and the numbers can be very large, let's say elderly care, that we can expect the routine jobs to become these more empathetic jobs that are more satisfying and can solve the meaning problem that I think a lot of people would face when AI displaces the jobs.
1: By the way, that is the most uh, optimistic, genuinely utopian, and in many ways, beautiful vision for how our ability to create this thing called artificial intelligence, because, frankly, it's not artificial, given that we invented it, and human passions, needs, emotions that are not really susceptible to bytes and bits, and that there can, in fact, be a harmonious interplay between the two rather than some sort of zero-sum competition between the two. And I think, you know, you, you create a real compassionate voice for... We've always oscillated between real fear of technology and real hope for it. And I think you're striking more of a balance between here's what technology can do, and much of it can be liberating, some of it can be threatening, and here's what technology can't do, which is create human relationships and emphasize the bonds between friends and family and society. It might augment those and it might undermine those, but it certainly in no way in our current horizon can supplant those. So it's a really, I think, important vision. And if we had more time, we could spend more time talking about it. But I do want to thank you for that, among other things.
2: Well, thank you. That's a great great summary. I couldn't put it better
1: myself. Thanks. Well, well good. Hopefully we will talk at another point. I appreciate the discussion today. Yeah, same here. Thank you. So as anticipated, that was a fascinating conversation. and. Hopefully, the degree to which Kaifu's ability to see the humanity in technology and the technology in humanity and his ability to see the ways in which these things can harmoniously evolve is inspiring. And in many ways, I think a voice that has been more muted, on the one hand, faced with the real anxiety and concern, legitimate, as he talks about, about how technology is going to disrupt contemporary work and disrupt a lot of what we currently do, but also talk about the ways in which the things that make us most human, the thing that makes us most alive in the world, our relationships, our ability to love, our empathy, our ability to connect to people, that in no way is imperiled by these devices and technologies and may in fact be enhanced by them if we allow it. The future is yet to be written, but if it's written by people like Kai Fooley, I think we can all feel a lot better about it. Until our next discussion, this has been What Could Go Right.